populist parties might be polarizing politics, but they are also, or at least the people who support those parties, are responding to what I would call a depolarization in the sense that if you look at mainstream governing left parties and mainstream governing right parties in Europe in the last 30 years, they've become more alike rather than, rather than polarized, right? Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to today's podcast with Professor Jonas Pontuson. We're really, really looking forward to share this 50-minute conversation with you, where we cover a super wide range of topics. We talk about the importance of intellectual curiosity, the importance of bringing together political engagement and academic rigor, and embracing the journey of university, not seeing it as a nine-to-five job and especially not freaking out if we have absolutely no clue where we want to specialize in, which I personally found deeply reconforting. As usual, we start our conversation with an introduction into the field of our guest. Uh, today, this will be, amongst other things, the rise of populism, political and economic inequality in Western democracies, and the decline of the left. So before we dive into our conversation, let me quickly introduce today's guest, Jonas Pontuson. He's Professor of Comparative Politics at the Faculty of Sciences de la Société since 2010. He has written extensively on Swedish social democracy, inequality, redistribution, capitalism, trade unions, and is currently directing a five-year research project on unequal democracies. Alongside Unequal Democracies, Jonas Pontuson is engaged in a project on post-Fordist growth models supported by the Swiss National Science Foundation. In terms of his academic career, let me say this, his CV is 10 pages long and accounts for an absolutely impressive amount of award-winning publications, research and teaching experiences at more than 10 universities, amongst others the University of California in Berkeley, Cornell University, Princeton University, Nuffield College in Oxford, Sciences Po in Paris and the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Some of you listening might know him from the course he teaches, Introduction à la politique comparée, which is mandatory for all students in the Barry having chosen mention politique. And with that, let's jump into our conversation. I hope you enjoy. So hello, Professor Pontuson. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for your time. Hello, and thank you for having me. So, um, and thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> So you started uh, your academic career in, in the absolutely crucial period, end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, um, researching on, on Western social democracies. And in these years, it's quite interesting because it, it was also a period of shift with, with Thatcher and Reagan, the, yeah, more and more this neoliberal ideology that, that found footing. Maybe for those that don't know it yet, just as quick introduction, could you define um, neoliberalism and also define to which extent in these last 40 years we've seen more and more inequality in our Western social democracies? I can try to do that. Uh, so everything I work on or everything I will say now and, and in, the, in the next, in all the questions I think will be about Western Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the, what we call the rich liberal democracies or OECD countries. And I think neoliberalism, it's, I think there was a very major shift that happened about 1980 
uh, or started about 1980, and it had to do with the economic crises of the 1970s. And I'm not sure, for me, the term neoliberal is, I, I'm not unhappy with the term, but it's not one that I always use. But I think that there were three things that define this shift. Number one, uh, I, I, I would say that in the post-war period, and especially in the 60s and 70s, um, full employment was a top priority of all governments. Uh, and the biggest shift, perhaps, that we see in macroeconomic policy is that from the 1980 onwards, I think most governments, starting, as you said, with uh, Thatcher and Reagan, governments backed off the full employment goal and prioritized other things, price stability, but not only price stability. And that full employment, I don't want to say governments don't care about the level of unemployment, but but it, did, it was no longer the uh, key priority that it had once been. I think the other thing that happens around that time in most countries is that uh, trade union density or trade unions become, they start losing members or at least they are not gaining any more members and they become partly as a result of this shift of macroeconomic priorities. They're no longer the, the partenaire, the, the, the social partners that governments need to deal with and bargain with in a way that they had been in the previous couple of decades. And then something also happens in the domain of welfare. I wouldn't say that welfare state development ends in 1980, but it begins to slow down, I think. And, and there are, and certainly in the 1990s and 2000s, we've seen a set of reforms in terms of generosity of unemployment insurance and things like that. And I think that this kind of neoliberal turn sets the stage for a set of reforms which come a little bit later. And I think, as you were saying, that we can say that if we look at, if we look at income distribution, and especially if we look at top income shares, as Thomas Piketty has shown, but others too, we could say that if we look at the distribution of earnings income before taxes, in most of these countries, we've had a trend towards mo a more compressed or more equal distribution, and that trend ends probably in the 1980s, and from the mid-1990s onwards, or from the mid This starts earlier in some countries, certainly in the UK and in the US, uh, but in the continental European countries, I think we've seen a fairly clear trend towards rising inequality, especially rising top-end, top-income shares, but also more poverty. So, so I think it's at the two extremes on the income distribution where we see the biggest changes. If you look at the distance between somebody in the, let's say, the 70th, 80th percentile and somebody in the 30th percentile, I don't think so much has changed in the middle, but certainly the rich have gotten richer relative to everybody else, and the poor have gotten poorer relative to everybody else. Uh, and I think that happens in most countries. And the other thing that we see in most countries, but there is variation, obviously, and I can talk about that later. Uh, the other thing that we see in most countries is that governments have not compensated as much, and social programs or social spending programs have not done as much compensation 
or correction as they used to. And in, in fact, in some countries, notably my mother country, Sweden, it seems like a lot of the inequality that has increased is actually a result of changes in the tax and transfer system rather than a, a result of changes in the market economy, if you want to put it that way. So you mentioned um, Thomas Piketty and, and especially also the whole um, publications on growing economic inequality. You, for your uh, five-year project, which I mentioned, you're focusing on political inequality, which is an area that has been yeah, less studied than, than the rise of economic inequality. Uh, what for dimensions of political inequality are you are you researching on and what are the, the main questions you're analyzing? Can you can you walk us through your, your research? Yes, so I think that this is a is a research area that is has become quite quite uh, important for political scientists. It hasn't yet taken on and it probably never will take on the kind of general public interest that Thomas Piketty and his books, I mean, he, he has been incredibly successful as a kind of rock star of social sciences. And, and I don't think we will ever have that kind of impact. But there is nowadays a lot of political scientists working on political inequality. And there is debate here. I, I think that I think most people, if, if you look, and there is many studies that have been done, we're doing some on, in my research team here. If you look at what citizens say that they want from the government, um, and then you ask yourself, do governments do, and you sort these citizens by income. So you, you say, what do the poor citizens want, or what do they say they want, and you, and you look at surveys and you ask, what do the middle-income citizens say they want, and what do the rich say they want? And then you ask yourself the question, does government actually do what these different groups of citizens want? I think most studies tell us for sure, and I think most scholars working in this area would say, in general, in most countries, what the rich or the affluent want is much more likely to become policy than what the poor want. Nobody is particularly puzzled by that. Some of us are bothered by it. Others are maybe not so bothered by it. But it's not puzzling why... why uh, poor, less educated citizens would have less political influence than highly educated brain surgeons, lawyers, university professors, or what have you. The debate, I think, is mostly about whether the rich are more influential relative to the middle class or the middle of the, of the income distribution or the social hierarchy, right? Many political scientists would say, well, yes, the rich are more influential than the poor, but they are not more influential than the middle because it's in the middle that parties will get the votes, that the majorities that they need to govern, and, and, and the middle will usually prevail or the interests of the middle will usually prevail. While there are others who are saying, no, no, the rich are really now, we have moved into a kind of democracy where that is where the rich rule, in a sense. And I think there is room, and I don't think that the empirical evidence is so clear there. So there, you could think of this debate also a little bit like this. So what, has hap what happened in the period from 1980 to 2010? One argument would be 
that the way democratic politics worked works has changed and affluent citizens and privileged inter interest groups have become more dominant than they were they have more influence now than they did before that's one argument the other argument the alternative argument is one which says the middle class and the poor have drifted apart they want different things the middle class is not actually so worried about unemployment not as worried about unemployment as it was in the 1970s and the poor to the extent that the poor were represented in politics at one point and they are no longer it's because their interests were closely aligned with the middle class and that that alignment of interest between the poor and the middle class has become much less close or much more problematic in some sense so there so you could think that there i think that's the debate has have governments become more unequally responsive than they used to be more pro rich than they used to be or has the middle class moved closer to the rich and farther away from the poor so that's one of the things we're trying to work on various pieces of that and looking at at variation over time and also looking at it may be that one of those arguments works best for some countries and and another argument works well for other countries uh, we just finished uh, i and one of my postdoc collaborators we just finished a uh, a paper where we where we look at survey risk there is a survey question that is often asked and the question says do you agree or not agree with the following statement uh, people like myself do not have any say in what government does uh, that question was has been asked in many countries in the nine, since 1996 it was also asked in some countries in the early 1970s and so we look at that and we actually look not at income groups but at social classes so we categorize citizens and it is very striking that if you divide the respondents into uh, well, five classes but there is an upper middle class who are again university professors medical doctors people like that and there is a middle class people lower grade managers various sort of middle class jobs then there is a skilled working class and there is an unskilled working class and needless to say the unskilled working class is much more likely so about about in the in the current period about 70% of unskilled workers will agree with this statement people like me have no say whatsoever in what government does and about 20 or 25% of upper middle class people will agree with that statement uh, and the other classes are in between some and there is a very clear class hierarchy in in how you answer that question and that hierarchy is identical in Sweden the United States in every country we have we have 19 countries and the interesting thing is that if you make the comparison with the early 1970s but it's exactly this, nothing has changed if you if 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 you think about so this is all about do people think they have some role to play or have some voice in the political system uh, for these nine countries nothing has changed from the early 70s to today the unskilled working class felt politically marginalized then 
they feel politically marginalized today. The upper middle class felt politically relevant then, and they feel politically relevant today. And their answers to these questions, it's, so there is a very striking kind of stability in answers to this question. So essentially, that can't be an explanation for, for the rise of populism. Right. So I started that paper or started that project thinking that something had really changed and that, and that workers in the 70s felt like they were influential. They didn't feel influential today. And, and therefore, some of them at least became populists or, or turned populist. And I don't think so that, yeah, I don't think that that can be an explanation. Now, there could be there could be an explanation which would say, well, people used to feel like they didn't have a lot of political influence, but it didn't bother them very much because politics were kind. Even if people weren't listening to them, the political system was doing things that were okay or, or the society was evolving in a direction or in a way. So, that, so not feeling like you had political voice was not, terribly important to these people in the 1970s, while feeling that you don't have a political voice makes you angry in the 2010s or something like that. So, right, so it could be that, there, that it's still kind of relevant, but it, but it can't be lack of political voice alone. It must be lack of political voice combined with something else or some other thing, things that are not going Right, so you think you don't have political voice and things are not going the way they ought to be going or something like that. So just to circle back on what you were, what you mentioned about um, social class that you find that an important concept, could you explain to which extent or what your research shows on the relevance of class uh, compared with income, compared with educational status um, in, in Western social democracies? Is this still a relevant concept in 2021? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, and in some sense, I think, I don't think income groups are so terribly relevant to real people. They are easy to measure. We can measure political influence in terms of income. But people move in the income distribution, right? I mean, young university educated people uh, start their working lives in the in the bottom third of the income distribution, over their lifetimes, they move to the seventh or eighth decile or even possibly higher, right? So, so, so over one's lifetime, one moves around in the income distribution. And if you lose your job, you will move down in your income distribution. So there is a fair amount of income mobility. By contrast, social class which is tied to education, in my opinion, or I think the, the single most important criterion that distinguishes what I would call the working class from the middle classes is whether or not you've been to university. Uh, so in that sense, I, I don't think of education as something separate from social class. But most people don't change social class in the course of their lifetime. Many people belong to a different social class from the one that their parents belong to. So there is intergenerational class mobility. But within one's own life, one usually, classes are much more permanent as a, as a social category than income groups. 
We already touched upon um, the the rise of populism. You were we were talking about potential reasons through um, yeah the salience of being unequally represented that it's now more important. What are what are other explanations also especially from comparative politics in terms of the reasons for the rise of populist parties, increased political polarization, and especially also your area the the fall of social democratic parties in the last decades. Let me think a little bit. I, I, I was going to say, when we were talking about class, I wanted to say, I think there are other social identities, gender, immigration status. I mean, I want to emphasize that classes are not homogenous, uh, and there are obviously other social identities. And in some countries, those other social identities are perhaps as important or more important than social class we know that obviously in the United States, race is crucially important, and 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 uh, and that whether you're a black worker or whether you're a white worker, whether you're a white male worker, you have perceptions of inequality and and political representation that are very different from those of of uh, of other members of the working class. Um, so on the rise of populism. I think it would be fair to say that the literature tends... So there, there are, and I'm, my guess is you, you all know this already, there are kind of two different views of why people become populist and particularly perhaps why working class people turn populist. One focuses on cultural issues uh, and, and focuses on working class populism as a kind of reaction to cosmopolitanism, multiculturalism, uh, and that all the quote-unquote liberals in, in the American sense of liberals, progressive people, social democratic parties, or uh, become, embrace multiculturalism, uh, and, that, and that many working class, but presumably also middle-class citizens actually have quite conservative cultural values and they react against, with respect to homosexuality or gay, gay marriage or any number of um, religious freedom or, or, or secularism, they are reacting against or they perceive um, the political elites as being... Uh, multicultural, cosmopolitan, uh, and they perceive some kind of threat to traditional values, to national community, uh, and that that's what populism is all about. Uh, and then there is a sort of the alternative view, which is one which says, no, no, populism is actually about material concerns, uh, competition from immigrants in the labor market, uh, competition from low-cost in, low imports from other countries uh, so that this is kind of globalization and immigration making it much more difficult for um, low-skilled people to, to, make, to find jobs and, and to find well-paying jobs uh, and that that's what populism is about. And perhaps in that second case, not only these materialist threats, but also a 
but also a perception that governments have not responded or are not doing very, haven't done very much so that the that the kind of the Clinton Democrats or the British New Labour of the 1990s and 2000s were were um, unresponsive or not terribly concerned about what traditional working class communities were, the, the difficulties they were experiencing. Um, I think this debate between cultural and material values is, is, a, is a bit overblown and, and, and I think it's, uh, personally I find it very hard to separate these two things from each other and I'm not even sure, I, my guess is that in the minds of real people it's not obvious that, uh, and, and I think that almost all of the kind of survey-based literature that shows that cultural values trump material interests. Well, I would say two things. For number one, in a way, it's bound to be that way because obviously if you're a racist, you're much more likely to vote for a racist party. So in that sense, I think it's not a terribly interesting finding that cultural values predict that people who favor redistribution vote for parties that uh, favor redistribution and people who are upset about immigration vote for parties that are upset about immigration. To me, it's not a terribly interesting result. But I think the other thing, and there is quite a lot of new literature on this, I think, which says that the material conditions that matter are not necessarily those of any given individual, uh, but that rather people... You could think of this as class, but especially, I think, in the context of populism, um, there's lots of evidence, I think, to show that where you live really influences your likelihood of, of, of voting for a populist or voting for populist parties. Rural, urban. Rural, urban, but, you know, as you may know, in the UK, rural means rich. So rural or small towns poor, not growing very much. I mean, we know, for instance, that, that, that you know, Donald Trump won in all parts of the United States where average incomes had stagnated over the, uh, over the last 10 or since the Great Recession uh, or before. He lost in every single uh, city or place where incomes had gone up and where property prices had gone up. Uh, if you count on a county basis, or Hillary Clinton won two thirds of American GDP. I mean, uh, so if GDP could vote, she would have been the hands down winner because the, all the areas that had been that were prosperous voted in majorities for Hillary Clinton and all areas. And so even relatively affluent people in communities that are poor will become, or in this case, voted for Trump, right? So in that sense, I think it's not only that people are looking at their own pocketbook, but they are looking at the community around them and saying, how are we doing relative to 15 years ago? Has government done anything to address our concerns or not? Do you see ways in which um, social democratic left-wing parties can can regain the trust of the working class, low-income citizens, and and maybe also we as young people, as what what would we have to push for 
um, entering now also the political landscape potentially to regain the trust um, and and decrease this political polarization uh, we are seeing. So has politics become more polarized or not? Uh, if I set the United States aside, it's kind of a special case. I think the problem of populism, and this relates to what I was saying before, the problem of populism is n- populist parties might be polarizing politics, but they are also, or at least the people who support those parties, are responding to what I would call a depolarization in the sense that if you look at left parties, mainstream governing left parties and mainstream governing right parties in Europe in the last 30 years, they've become more alike rather than rather than polarized, right? Uh, and if they had continued or if, if, if the sort of difference between social democratic parties and, and liberal or Christian democratic parties had been the same, today as it was then, my guess is that some of those working class voters who turned quote-unquote populist uh, would still be voting for the social democratic parties. Uh, So in that sense, it's not obvious that we have a problem with polarization. I think that the United States has a problem with polarization and has had a problem with polarization for quite some time. So I actually think that politics is changing, and I think left parties, but also other parties. I think that both social democratic political elites and liberal or or center-right political elites are shifting their policies and in response to populist threats uh, and I think they are, I think that there was a time in the 1990s and 2000s where people were thinking, well, there's a small group of losers from globalization. They're basically uneducated people. And this generation is going to disappear. They're going to, we're moving into the knowledge society. There is about 25% of the electorate or of the population that is not, can't really benefit from this transition. Uh, but it's a temporary problem because these people are going to disappear and they're going to be gone and then we can just continue. Now I think people have come to the realization. And, and most importantly, not only are they going to disappear, but they have no options. There is no, there is no party that they can vote for that's going to uh, upset the apple cart. Now I think in the last five or ten years, these elites have started saying, it's not just 20%, it's quite a bit more than 20%, and there are options available suddenly. We want to continue a kind of liberalization of trade and maintaining a a liberal world order. We need to do something that, that compensates, as in fact there had always been compensation for for uh, globalization in the in the past. So in that sense, I think that rich people and political elites are. This has been a wake up call, and I think they have, in some sense, woken up. And I think the question becomes, and especially perhaps for social democratic parties, what you were saying, which is regain trust. So if I look at what these parties are advocating today, it's more or less what they 
advocated 30 years ago, I think, or it's not, it's not, and I have, in ter- if I look at the platforms of social democratic parties or in Europe today, I would not want to criticize them, or I wouldn't sort of say, oh, these, they're fundamentally wrong. Uh, if I had looked at, the, when I looked at their platforms in the late 90s, I think they probably were wrong, or I, um, but I think a big problem for social democratic parties is they lost trust, and they also changed in the way they do politics and who they are. And we see this very clearly in, in all social democratic parties, I think, that the candidates they're fielding are increasingly university-educated people. Uh, they are people who appeal to middle-class, upper-middle-class voters, uh, they, we see them as people like us. We like people like us. Everybody likes people like themselves. Uh, and, and they were always, social democratic parties were always, obviously people running for public office were always more educated and somewhat higher status than people who simply voted. But in the past, I think trade unions as organizations used to maintain the kind of link between these slightly elite social democratic politicians and their working class base. So not only have the politicians become more middle class, but the but the link has also become much weaker. Uh, and I do worry about that. And, and, and in that sense, I think I think these parties have corrected their or had, have made an important correction in terms of the policies they advocate. What are positive policies? Um, shifting the tax burden onto, or taxing the rich more, and that's clearly part of the Biden package, and I think it is part of the, the social democratic package in Europe. So, so yeah, so, so, so increasing taxes on corporations and on rich individuals, uh, that that is a positive thing. Uh, providing subsidized uh, childcare is a progressive, both gender progressive, but also uh, household progressive. Uh, it is much easier for affluent households to pro- to afford private health childcare than than uh, working class households. In the context of uh, COVID and future pandemics, paying people to stay home when they're sick uh, is a positive, progressive thing. Certainly in, in Sweden, the social de- unemployment insurance compensation was cut and is has been restored. And obviously, education and things of that sort can also be be good. But I think that I I think that the redistributing income. Is is so? I think in the in as you probably know in the 1990s and in the in the early 2000s, a lot of social democratic parties and in particular Blair, but German social democrats, Swedish social democrats, they were all saying, "Oh, we want to cut, we want to maintain, we want to reduce public expenditure. We shouldn't be spending a lot of money on transferring money to." To less well-off households, what we should do is to invest in education and in what's called social investment, and and this will help these households or these families to become productive and high and and better. So 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 we're going to invest in 
people skills rather than in rather than transfer money. Um, that was certainly the ideology of third way social democracy. And I don't want to say it's completely wrong, but there are two problems. Number one, when you expand university education, more middle class children will go to university than working class children. So 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 it's all very hard, I think, to and and even and even if these investments are made, and obviously I, we should invest in education and so on, the payoff to low-income households is 20 years down the road or something like that, right? And uh, in that sense, yes, it's my children will benefit from this set of policies, but you know, but I still have to live for 40 years before before we get to that point. Uh, and yeah, so I think that uh, kind of moving back to taxes and transfers as something we should, we cannot just kind of assume that that's old style social democracy. So for this um, second part about especially your, your academic experience, as an introductory question, what brought you to academia? Why did you decide to devote your career to um, research? It's a little hard to reconstruct exactly, but um, but I was just intellectually curious, I guess. And I well, there are two things I think. One one was that I I was certainly interested in politics before I be, decided to become an academic. Uh, and I so I on the one hand I was interested in politics and political debates and political phenomena, and on the other hand I knew I didn't want to be a politician. Uh, so how would you? And I suppose one could have chosen to be a journalist or something like that but but it was a way to kind of think about social and political phenomena engage with social and political phenomena in a in a less day-to-day and a less kind of follow today's headlines fashion and perhaps do something or improve the world but i'm not i'm not sure that that has ever been i've never been had a lot of um illusions about the extent to which I might uh, improve the world by doing research. Um, but I do enjoy arguing with people, and this is one of the big attractions of academia for me is, is uh, argument and argumentation and, and sort of showing that other people are wrong is something that I, that I get pleasure from. And, and, uh, and, uh, and I think that's true of a lot of academics, that they, they like to upstage other people well so you just explained why you wanted to go into academia but was it like a natural process that you also went into teaching did that go hand in hand how did how did that come about so i grew up in sweden and a lot of what i'm interested in and a lot of my intellectual agenda is very much influenced by growing up in sweden uh, which was a fairly social democratic and egalitarian country at least at that time but I moved to the United States when I was 16 years old, and I went to college, did, my, did all of my university education in the U.S. And at the, in the U.S., at least in that, at that time, uh, so in Europe, I think there are academic positions that are primary, that could be entirely research positions in the U.S., there really are very, very few. I mean, there are think tanks, and you kind of you can do policy research, but it is very hard to do basic research, 
without being. Basic research is done almost entirely in universities, and people who work in universities almost all teach. I never thought that I could do basic research without teaching. Uh, so, 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 yeah, so at least in the context of, of American universities, uh, which is where I sort of started and got my first job. In that context, there was no choice between either research or teaching. The two of them always went together, and I and I and I and I've actually enjoyed that. I can't say that I absolutely always love teaching, but but I and on on a couple of occasions I've spent time in research institutes. And every time I've gone away saying, I'm glad I'm not in a research institute where, where all I do is research every day, I think it's very useful, sometimes hard and possibly unpleasant, but, it's, but having to explain, having to kind of connect your research to some larger literature and having to explain this to students is a, is a really useful kind of part of being an academic and and yeah so 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 the, yeah the idea that i would do nothing but research for 20 years would would feel very much like covid confinement or something like that <laughs> that, that uh. <laughs> so you've you've spent a long period of time um in in the us in different universities in the us how 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 is teaching and researching different um, U.S. compared to also European universities and now more concretely your experience here in Geneva since 2010? Well, I think the, the, the first thing that one should say is that, that American universities are very, there is a very wide range of universities in the United States uh, and at least some of the universities where I was it would almost be kind of unfair to compare the University of Geneva with... So before I came here, I was at Princeton, and Princeton is, you know, an extremely rich uh, private university that hires only the very best professors that are in on the academic job market, and, and everybody would like... So it's, a, it's, a, it's an elite university, uh, whereas I was a graduate student at, at the University of California in Berkeley, which is a public university where, you know, basically everybody who, in contrast to here, you, you well, it's essentially the same. Basically, everybody who went, goes to a high school in the, in the state of California uh, and gets a better than uh, 5.25 or whatever grade average you're entitled to go there, so it's a mass university in, in some sense, as is the University of Geneva, um, while Princeton, you know, it's very expensive to go, only some, only, it's very selective, this, the selection of students is very selective, everybody runs around thinking that they are masters of the universe and that this is a very precious place they have they are in so in so in that sense and for good and for bad but it's but it's very hard to uh, compare them in some ways so teaching at places like Berkeley and I was also uh, sorry at Princeton and I was an undergraduate student in a 
somewhat similar place, a liberal arts college, you know, a massive amount of the teaching that we do at Princeton takes the form of a professor and 12 students in a room. And this professor will tell the 12 students, by next week, I want you to have read this book, this entire book, and we are going to discuss this book next week, the 12 of us. I have not seen anything like that at the University of Geneva, right? Uh, so it is, and you can't kind of, you can't kind of not do the reading or you cannot hide behind the other students, right? Whereas, whereas here, obviously, we have some interactive teaching, but the interactive teaching almost always takes the form of, you know, you, Sandrine, you are going to present, uh, you're going to do a little PowerPoint next week. And, and, and everybody else says, oh, fine, that's Sandrine's time next week. I don't have to prepare anything. And, and I'm certainly not going to criticize her for the presentation that she is, has given, right? So, so we are kind of, we take turns perf performing in a certain way. Whereas at places like Princeton and Harvard and other places, Everybody always has to be on their toes, and everybody, and this, again, there are some very good things about this, and there are some very bad things about it. Showing off and convincing the professor and the other people in the room that you understood the book better than Sandrine did is becomes a part of the game that you are right. So it's kind of intense. And it's probably people probably learn a lot, and including some some bad habits or some. Uh, uh, but I think, yeah, I I so that said, so and obviously we could never. There there is just not the number of professors per student, uh, or the sort of student professor ratios are not uh, possible. Uh, at the University of Geneva, nor at the University of California, to have those kinds of that type of teaching. But I'm a little bit surprised by how how much of the teaching mode is still kind of based on the professor comes in, he or she delivers a lecture, and the role of the students is to kind of write down whatever the professor said and reproduce that at some exam in the future. This is not only in Geneva. This I think this holds for all of uh, Europe, continental Europe at least. Uh, a, a pretty, from an American point of view, a pretty um, hierarchical way of thinking about the, about teaching. I, I think it's changing, but uh, and in a funny way. And this is kind of my critique of Swiss students. I think. I think this. The students are, I don't want to use, well, I will use the word lazy, but there is a certain kind of laziness about it, I think. So, so this kind of ex-cathedral teaching, professor gives the, tells you how the world works and you write it down and then you kind of, um, it suits everybody to some extent or, or certainly suits the professor's ego, but it also kind of suits the students to some extent because 
you know exactly what you're supposed to do, and it doesn't require a lot more than showing up. And I think my students are very good at doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, so in that sense, I'm not. I'm actually think that the quality of what I get back is 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 good and and probably better than it would be at a public university in the United States. But it seems like people are not people are not looking for excellence or brilliance or we are not none of us are expecting sparks to fly uh i mean there are so many things i would still i would still like to touch upon but um i think we have to slowly wrap the the discussion up normally we ask this final question what are the the three tips you would give yourself at age 20 i would very much like to also ask you Yes, these three tips you would give yourself at age 20, but also now to the individual, we were talking about intellectual curiosity that, that to a certain extent you see more in, in, uh, in these more competitive um, universities. Are there three tips you would give those listening? And then to wrap it up, what would you tell yourself at age 20? <laughs> I, I think those things are probably... Uh, the same, but I think one thing uh, that I would tell the listeners, and 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 partly this is for PhD students, but I think it also goes for for undergraduates, bachelor students. Avoid premature specialization. There are a lot of interesting lectures and and seminars at the university. You should really kind of try, try to take advantage of those. I think. Uh, that the university that you should stop thinking of the university as a job, uh, a sort of nine to five thing. There are courses you must take. There are exams you must finish. And I, yeah, I th my my impression is, and maybe I'm talking, uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but my impression is that a lot of students at the University of Geneva think of it as a job. Yeah, think of it less as a job and think of it more as an intellectual journey or something that is kind of fun or that you're sort of pushing yourself and challenging yourself in some way uh, and think of the the particular program you choose for masters or whatever less in terms of the program being a, an instrument for or having an instrumental purpose in terms of a career and instead kind of think of it in terms of intellectual curiosity or doing something that's really meaningful to you. I think we it's obvious that we all excel when we are doing things that we are that we are good at and that we are all, and that many of us can perform better than better than average at any number of tasks but but we excel at tasks that we are that we find really interesting and that and And success will follow from that. And the other advice I have is, you know, go abroad. And and I did that. So, uh, 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 but yeah, I think going abroad is a really good thing to do. Uh, almost anywhere abroad, uh, but of, obviously, some places are better than others, and so on. But but uh, so, be curious. Follow your followed what your intellectual curiosities don't worry too much about making a lot of money uh, and uh, and go abroad and probably and and yeah I, I think trying to do something that is 
socially meaningful or relevant for no it's not only about yourself but i think you have to kind of do things that you think are interesting and fun but also obviously ask yourself whether those things might have some some slightly larger purpose that it, it was one thing i was going to say in response to a question that i don't think you ever asked but i but in terms of teaching so what what i to the extent that I have a goal as a teacher, it is to convey to students that it's not, there is no trade-off between being politically engaged and having a quote-unquote scientific approach to, or doing social science or doing political science, that we, I think far too often we think that people, people either people are polit- political and and ideological and and don't care about evidence or don't care about method and stuff like that or people are scientists they do methods and they are neutral as far as what the politics are and I, and I and I don't think I don't yeah I I want to kind of convey to students that one's political engagements primarily have to do with the kinds of questions you ask I think how we then answer those questions has to do with, or there, are, there is a set of criteria, we could call them scientific criteria, that we all have to adhere to when it's those questions, so that, so that there is, yeah, one can be political and one can be a scientist and a, and a politically engaged person at the, at the same time. Wow, thank you so much for for all these incredibly um, valuable uh, insights that you've shared with us and your time. It's been a huge pleasure. Um, And I think all of us will clearly i for me at least, I mean, it's something that I've, I've, uh, I feel very passionate about the importance of doing research, or I feel like people that do research for a cause for something they stand behind will essentially uh, also manage to to do something that makes sense for society and academia and society are intrinsically have to be linked. And I feel like we have sometimes a bit of a disconnect, which, uh, yeah, if, if you know what you're doing it for, then you will probably also, and with the good methods and everything, you'll probably also have a different impact on, yeah, on society and our... Absolutely. Yeah. And you will be happier as a person. And you will be happier as a person. That's it. So thank you so much for uh, to everyone listening. Thank you one more, one more time to uh, Jonas Pontuson for joining us. It's been a really great conversation. And uh, we will see you again, or we'll, you'll hear um, us again uh, next week on next week's podcast. Um, yeah. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.